For a playwright whose works have consistently been in some state of performance somewhere in the world for the better part of the last four centuries, it seems strange to think that Shakespeare might have works that could be considered unknown. This is a man who invented nearly 2,000 words for the English language, whose explorations of what it means to be human, warts and all, form the basis of the entire study of modern humanities and inspire great debate amongst people to this day. What can he possibly know of being lesser known? As it turns out, quite a lot. There are about a dozen plays of the 38 or so attributed to him that just don't see the light of day. They're not performed. They're rarely studied. If you stopped someone on the street today and asked them to quote you a line from Shakespeare, it wouldn't likely be, fear no more the heat of the sun, nor the furious winter's rages, or things won are done, joy's soul lies in the doing. There are works of Shakespeare that speak to us, that move us, that stir our souls to great heights. And then there's Henry VI, part one. Of course, that's not to say that Shakespeare is in any danger of falling into obscurity. Rather, I think it's likely the case that certain plays of his, Lear, Macbeth, Othello, have simply risen to the top, or have been selected perhaps as more worthy of study, than others. It's sort of an intra-canon canon, if you will. These are the plays you will read if you read no others, etc. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. There are very few writers whose entire oeuvre is considered when talking about them, and that's mostly because most writers write a lot, J.D. Salinger and Harper Lee notwithstanding. Everyone is going to have a few duds in their repertoire that just don't see the same light of day as their vaunted masterpieces. Except I do challenge the idea that a Shakespeare play that's not one of the quote-unquote big ones is somehow unworthy of study. Henry VI Part Two contains a surprising amount of wickedly fun political intrigue. There is no better example of a revenge fantasy come to life than Titus Andronicus, nor a more heartbreaking vision of betrayal and redemption than The Winter's Tale. And Troilus and Cressida features some of the most beautiful language, I think, that we've read so far for this podcast. It surprises me, and yet it doesn't surprise me, that these plays are so rarely performed, so rarely put on class syllabi. Our evaluation of Shakespeare's plays is not an ever-fixed mark. As Linda Rodriguez McRobbie, writing for Smithsonian Mag, put it, King Lear used to be a bad play. And it's true. Restoration theaters, high on life after shaking off the soul-crushing years of Puritan rule, deemed Lear to be too dark and twisty for easy consumption. A critical reevaluation revealed its virtues to the society that reevaluated it. So perhaps it's worth asking, why are some plays overlooked? Is there something inherent about them that makes them less performable, less interesting, more challenging to a modern theater audience? Will there ever be a time when the problem plays and late romances receive the due that they might richly deserve? I don't know. In the meantime, I suppose there is something terribly human about the idea that Shakespeare wasn't perfect, that some of his works might have, well, sucked a little. I would be curious to zoom forward one or two or five hundred years to see how future humanities professors and cultural temperature takers alike view the works we hold so dearly now. Since brevity is the soul of wit. More of your conversation would infect my brain. Romeo. Wherefore art thou, Romeo? To speak of him as my kinsman, he's a most notable coward. An infinite and endless liar, an hourly promise breaker, the owner of no one good quality worthy your lordship's entertained. And beat thee, but I should infect my hand. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. The course of true love never did run smooth. 
Lindsay. And I'm Aiden. And we are the Bix. Indeed. And today we are discussing, as I mentioned, the lesser known plays. Mm-hmm. Um, a list of, I don't know how many we've got on here. Well, we listed, I mean, you mentioned a couple in your introduction. Yeah. We've listed a few, maybe like a dozen yeah, or Yeah, I think about so. a dozen, yeah. Um, and they're the ones that came to mind. Like, we went through the list and we're like, mm-hmm. yeah, you don't see this very often. This one's fairly rare. Mm-hmm. We've never seen this one performed and so yeah. forth. Uh, so, again, it's kind of a, as with this whole topic, really, it's kind of a subjective list sure. to to an extent. But, um, yeah, there are some you just never see performed or ones that you didn't know he wrote uh, and some that maybe he didn't write. Yeah. Uh, which might explain some of the reason why they're not shown very often. But, um, yeah, we, we wanted to look at some of these these plays and and have a think about how, how they're all connected and uh, what sets them apart, maybe. I was going to ask why we chose this topic, because it does seem strange. We haven't read all of these plays, although looking through the list, there are, if you discount the ones that may not have been written by Shakespeare, there's only two on the list that we haven't read mm-hmm. or seen performed. So um, it does seem like it's it's a tough topic to dive into. Why are we torturing ourselves with this topic, <laughs> Aiden? Explain this to me. Uh, I think, well, it just because... Shakespeare's held up as the greatest writer in the English language, yeah. and he had some duds, and it's nice to point them out. Well, and I, like I said, I think I think duds is a again a subjective term, yeah. and well, subjective not just to the person but to the time period. Yeah. Well, you said that funny. No, well, I just, I'm just saying like there are some that I mean they're they're not performed. The, the, yeah. They've never really connected with audiences. We talked about Troilus mm-hmm. and Cressida mm-hmm. uh, last episode. Because it does have a really hard time connecting with audiences. People, mm-hmm. there's no one to really latch onto and enjoy and and root uh, for. yeah, root for in that in that play. Um, there, there's opportunities for someone with a certain vision of that text to do something with it, um, but it's just not built like a Hamlet, where you're going to follow Hamlet yeah. and you're going to go see his descent into madness, probably, uh, and then <laughs> you're going to see him kill everybody at the end. Like yeah. that—that's that's a story that's easy to track, easy to follow. Trollus and Cressida has none of that. Yeah, and yeah, so I mean, there there are ones that we might now evaluate as being interesting or well-written or mm. whatever, but they've never connected with audiences. Well, and I think the other thing is um, when we talk about plays that are worthy of study, obviously that's in a scholastic context yeah. and and you have to kind of handhold your audience, in this case, a high school classroom or a, you know, intro level university class through these plays. So mm. um, having a play like Pericles or... Yeah. Um, Timon of Athens or something like that maybe is a little bit heavy, whereas a Hamlet or a Macbeth, because there's they follow a lot more of the um, the traditional storytelling, uh, the the expectations, yeah, yeah, the characterization. There's you know a consistent mood. There's things that you can follow that you if you've read a novel you know how to read a, this play or yeah. that play. Um, which makes it hard with the Troilus and Cressida, right? Yeah. Because it doesn't follow the rules. Yeah. But that's maybe where I would argue that it it has the most interest for an audience that wants to tackle it. Yeah. So you just have to, like we talked about in our Troilus and Cressida episode, maybe find that audience and, and develop the story for that audience. Mm-hmm. Or hope that they'll find it anyway. Yeah. Um, so... The the article from Smithsonian Mag. You guys have no idea how many times I tried to say that. Lindsay in my butchered intro. that intro a couple times. There. <laughs> it was pretty bad. Um, I don't know why. I just couldn't say Smithsonian Mag. Oh man, it yeah. was embarrassing. 
But as that article, which we will link in our description, um, as it says that uh, there's this um, this fluidity to Shakespeare's mm-hmm. um, acceptance, I guess, yeah. or, or the, the types of stories that are accepted by Shakespeare, or sorry, by audiences of Shakespeare's yes. plays, and um, and yeah, King Lear once being considered a bad play is kind of the perfect entry point into the first thing that we want to talk about is just kind of a a very broad high level overview of the history of theater because um looking at the way that theater has developed over time Mm -hmm. is kind of instructive for how shakespearean plays are being perceived as we move through time um so very briefly greek theater when Theater was kind of invented back in the 6th century or whatever. Very different from the way that theater is performed today. You would have maybe one or two characters on stage performing, not even really performing. They were just reciting or chanting lines with a chorus that would comment on what was happening. It was very, uh, very staid almost. I think the the what I've read is that they had masks and um elaborate footwear that would prevent them from really moving around a lot on stage so it really kept things to movement anyway to a minimum so very different from the way that theater is done today um and you have i think through by the time you get to aristophanes you start getting more naturalistic dialogue and many more characters on stage but in the early days Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides, you're kind of limited to um, the kinds of stories that are being told and and how they're being told. And we come to this idea of the unities, which... Mm -hmm. um, We've mentioned many times. Yeah, the the Aristotelian, um, the three unities, which Mm -hmm. are uh, the unity of action, unity of time, and unity of place. So stories had to take place uh there was there was one principal action in the story they should take place over no more than a day and it should exist in a single physical location so these were rules that the theater had to adhere to that the play had to adhere to um which is kind of called back on i think shakespeare some of the stories that shakespeare uses refer to this there are i don't think any of the plays necessarily follow all of them but there's an attempt, I think, to try and limit things in certain of his plays. So you can see that kind of being called back to in, in um, once we get to the Elizabethan era. Yeah. It, it's also interesting that Shakespeare uh, at times follows those unities very closely. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of interesting, though, some of his more haphazard, confusing uh, plays like Midsummer Night's Dream yeah. has unity of place and time. It's all mm-hmm. in the forest. It's all over one night. Yeah. Uh, and yet there's a lot going on there. There's yeah. three different intersecting storylines. Yeah, hundred uh, different actions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it's not. It is not a, a simple, straightforward play. Um, so a lot of the those kind of rules that, um, yeah, people like Aristotle and and so forth kind of set out in the in the very early days of theater mm-hmm. uh, kind of fell by the wayside. But it is that was that was the kind of understanding that that started off. And again, we're just talking about Western theater. We're not talking. Yes. You know. And Beijing once, opera and, once we and get into it, it's really going to be English theater <laughs> yeah, because yeah. we didn't study French theater or <laughs> yes. any of that. So yeah. um, moving ahead to like medieval, the medieval times. So like the, um, uh, it's kind of ironic that the church is what keeps plays yeah, alive yeah. when yeah. the church is what canceled Roman plays. <laughs> the Romans kind of took over from the Greeks yeah. and, and that's where you get, um, you know, different types of, of theater in Roman times, which we're not going to really get into. But um, medieval theater starts to use drama as a way to connect with the communities that they were trying to ingratiate themselves with mm-hmm. in a post-Roman world. Yeah. Um, 
So they would have these traveling, we've talked about this before, these traveling troops that would go around and perform basically Bible stories for rural peasants um, using stock characters that were really easy for people to, to understand. Um, as you get later on, they become less biblical and more generalized. But mm-hmm. um, and, and these were called variously um, morality plays or mystery plays mm-hmm. or passion plays if they were literally depicting the passion Passions. of the Christ. Yeah. But um, and, and that was kind of for a good thousand years yeah. really that was what theater in england theater, was yeah. like yeah. uh was these traveling troops that would go around and, and perform for people um so as we mentioned way way back in our what do we know about shakespeare his yeah. biography yeah. plays these are the kind of sorry in his our biography episode yeah. that was the kind of play that he would have seen um, as a young boy, probably, um, because heading into the Renaissance, you get um, a bit more of a broadening of the theatrical stage, I guess, mm-hmm. um, with theater troops starting to set up shop in purpose-built theaters, kind of like the Roman and Greek amphitheaters yep. of yore, and they would have a repertoire of plays that they would be putting on. It would be very uh, commercialized and business-oriented, mm-hmm. so you would have uh, theater owners um, as in Shakespeare's case, he and his theater owners owned the building. They owned the plays that would have been performed there. Shakespeare was a writer, but he was a playmaker um, in the sense that... The playwright, yes. Well, yeah, yeah. And, and then the play... like They were all considered playmakers because they would... It was a very technical thing. It wasn't a yeah. creative process. It wasn't like the way that in Anonymous it's portrayed as like divine inspiration... Mm-hmm probably didn't that that's not how it happened it would have been a very technical thing we're going to perform a play that is going to appeal to this group of people that is going to bring in this much money so that we can do this next thing and it was a business so um not a creative endeavor i think that's really important to well i mean focus on creativity came out of it absolutely but but yes yes, it's much like the purpose of it no, well, it's like we've made the the uh, comparison many times on this podcast between the the studio system in Hollywood mm-hmm. and the yeah. Shakespearean playwright system. Yeah. They were there to make money, uh, putting bunts and seats yep. and charging people a penny for for the show. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I mean, Shakespeare emerges into this kind of setting where. Um, yeah, he he's has much more freedom. It doesn't have to be a morality play. It can mm-hmm. have uh, obviously looser structures and uh, you can pull from different sources. So there's classical sources, yeah. but there's also Italian and French and yeah, everywhere English else that's experiencing the own. Renaissance. Yeah, 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 and Spain and everywhere. So yeah. uh, he's he has this this more free approach that he can take, um, and the works that we get are are the result of that. Yeah, um, but there's still you know. There's a five act structure in every single one of his plays. Like yeah. there's still certain rules that that follow. Yeah. Um, you know the fact that the problem plays uh, are described as such is because they there was they don't fit the rules that that were or the expectations I would, yeah. should say of of what the audiences and the creators of the a time. Comedy ends with a marriage. Yes. Well, yes. You know the tragedy. Troilus and Cressida. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly, right. Yeah. So, but but the characters don't die in the end, yeah. and so it's not a tragedy, and yeah. so it's it. Yeah, definitely, there's some looser structures that that come out of it, but um, but that's kind of the first time that you really see in England, anyway, that mm. kind of freedom of creativity. Yeah. Technical creativity. 
Yeah, we'll call it that. Yeah. That works. Um, so then you get into the, the restoration period. So we've referenced this before that um, during the Puritan rule, the interregnum period, um, plays were abolished. Mm-hmm. And so when they came back in the 1660s. Heresy. Heresy all. Yes. Um, you get Charles II who loved the theater mm-hmm. and was a great um, patron of the arts and patron of theaters so you start to see this kind of like the roaring 20s you get this you know explosion of creativity and and really with comedies are really the the focus Mm -hmm. of things here so witty dialogue and comedies of manner comedies of error um stock characters and stock plot lines start to become very very popular women are allowed to perform on stage um so and and there was this focus on immorality like they weren't it was like the opposite of the morality plays like we're gonna really lean into like sexual misadventures and we're gonna lean into uh cross-dressing or or you know any of the taboos that existed we're just gonna run headlong into them because and and if you don't like it well we're just gonna shove it in your face even more right that's what the restoration is all about um, so yeah, Lear, not a yeah, good fit, surprisingly, not fit. yes. Exactly, yeah. so that really makes a lot of sense. But as you go into the 18th and 19th century, you start to see um, average people stories start to be told yes. with uh, like normal people, not kings, not gods, not great wealthy people, just average stories. So that's one part of it. But also an emergence of like uh, movie star type, you know, people being elevated to like David Garrick, right? Ellen Terry in the 19th century, like people who are being elevated to this to the level of great mm-hmm. actor stars. Yeah. So so you need to have a vehicle for that character for that for that actor to play a character that is going to draw people in because they want to see David Garrick. They don't want to see King Lear. They want to see David Garrick play King Lear. They want to see David Garrick play Hamlet. Yeah. Or whatever. Um, or Brad Pitt play Achilles. Right, exactly. No, 100%, <laughs> yeah. right? So it's become this the plays become vehicles for stars, which mm-hmm. is kind of a precursor to our Hollywood star yeah. system. Yeah. Um so yeah, that's kind of then technically, I guess the in the 19th century there's a lot of technical innovations that come along with the industrial revolution mm-hmm. um like fly lofts or elevators or um people being able to be hoisted up into the rafters and fly around on the stage. Um, the, the use of gaslighting, which wasn't very good, meant yeah. that the acting had to be a lot bigger. And so you see a lot of melodrama come mm-hmm. out of that because audiences aren't going to be able, they're not going to care if two people are deep in conversation in the middle of the play. They want to see a sword fight or they want to see a big bar fight or something, right? So you get a lot more of that coming out. And then the 20th century, where we are now, you know, into the 21st century is um, you get this multitude of, of perspectives, mm-hmm. right? And the fracturing of perspective and, and the subjectivity of the theater and, and of all artistic experience. Um, there's an increased commercialization aspect to it. So Absolutely. popular stories are more popular than artistic stories, maybe, as I've complained about many times. And there's also this trend towards naturalism and realism, Mm -hmm. especially in dialogue, um, which can be totally played up with certain, you know, you think of film or theater that that matches that kind of thing, or you can play with it in different ways. David Mamet, Aaron Sorkin, um, 
what was, we just watched a, a short documentary about yeah, it was, that was Noah Baumbach. Yeah. yeah, more I mean, about film, but yeah, yeah you're right. But, but yeah, that, that kind of applies across. There's also, you know, the emergence of musicals yes. as it, their own thing and, and the popularity of that. Um, yeah, I mean, theater, it's what we, it's the theater we still have, basically. Yeah. The, the 20th century uh, innovated a lot of that uh, and popularized it and, and the connection to film and yes. all those things are all... The expectations we, of yeah. film. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for, which influence yeah. the way you go to a theater show now. You expect yeah. explosions, or at least you know a giant devil. I'm thinking of Book of Mormon now. Yeah, um, <laughs> but like you know, like there's 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 more of that that's that's applicable. I mean, we're not big theater people. I right. Mean, you kind of have to be in New York or London to really be on the cutting edge of of theater and to yeah. see the the big plays that are coming out all the time. Yeah. We get kind of the the late arrivals and and we're probably 10 years behind in terms of like you know the 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 scripts that are yes Aiden says after just referencing Book of Mormon yeah exactly (laughs) yes yes um but yeah so I mean there's there's this uh wider discrepancy and wider Mm -hmm. variety and and it's it's what we've we've kind of come to expect which is kind of interesting because you would think in this day and age where there is such a multitude or plethora of of experiences being represented and and ways into the theater even if you're not in London or or New York, there's fringe theater festivals and there's community theater that's being put on. There are still plays by Shakespeare that are not performed. You would think that now would be the perfect time for that to be tried and played with. But well, I'm sure th- I'm sure they're more produced now than they've probably ever they were, been. Yes, yes, just because there's more people putting exactly. on theater. Exactly. Um, but yeah, it's still not the big breakthrough no. uh, successes that you know. You would expect. Well, you, you might you think might might yeah. arise. It's yeah. it's still the Henry the Fifths and the Hamlets and the you know the the big actors go to those, and plays. the people who want to mess around with Shakespeare will do it with those plays. They'll do an all female, um, yeah, well, Hamlet one, or Othello. Which one did whatever. we just watch? That was all female. Oh, um, Julius Caesar. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Set yeah. in a woman's prison. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. cool stuff like that. But they, again, the, to bring the audience into the seats mm-hmm. uh, and fulfill Shakespeare's original purpose of putting butt, butts in seats uh you got to kind of go for the ones that have the headlines and stuff yeah. it's uh it's a little harder to say we're going to do this amazing production of king john because king john is not an amazing play. <laughs> so it's just it, and people probably know that and after they've gone to see that one production they're like yeah that wasn't a great play yeah i'm um, not going to go to the theater ever again because that's how people vote with their money in some cases yes. in some cases yes, so yeah i think risk. i think there's definitely yeah with the increased commercialization the risk of of doing something out there is probably unless you are in a in a a very supportive or a fringe theater kind of environment yeah, but then, that I mean, kind of thing but it's hard to do allow. shakespeare on that kind of scale oh, yeah, right definitely. you know you, yeah. need, you need a big cast and what have you so yeah so that that's kind of bringing us to today villain i have done thy mother so the lesser-known plays that we have listed. Aiden, would you like to... Yeah, I can Just because through. I need a drink, so I'm yep, going to take a break from talking. Uh, talking. So the list we've got, and, you know, feel free to disagree or send us a note Your mileage may vary. Yes. Um, the Merry Wives of Windsor. Yes. Not, not very popular. As You Like It, uh, All's Well That Ends Well, Winter's Tale, Pericles, Two Noble Kinsmen, King John, Henry VI, basically all, all the parts, uh, Henry VIII, Edward III... Troilus and Cresta, Coriolanus, Timon of Athens, and Cymbeline. Yeah. Um, there's probably a few more you could drop in in there. I was I was a little judicious. I wanted to have not too long of a list. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's kind of where we're approaching it. Again, uh, I think we've we seen All's Well That Ends Well once, I believe. Yep. Uh, Winter's Tale once. 
We've read Merry Wives and All's or As You Like It. Yeah. But Henry the Sixth. Henry the Sixth we read, but we've never seen. No. Uh, Henry the Eighth never seen. Edward the Third never seen. Uh, Trust and Cressida never seen. Never seen. Coriolanus, I think we might have. Maybe not, because I don't remember it at all. I don't remember the story to that at all. Tim of Athens never. Didn't no. even know Shakespeare wrote it. Uh, and, and then Cymbeline, you we read. read, but we didn't. We were supposed to read. I didn't read it in yes. university. It was the one that you didn't read. Yes. I didn't read a lot of You didn't read a lot of plays, but... You Still walked away with a B plus in that course. Yes, so, the same as know. me, who read yeah. almost all the plays. Yeah, I just know how to, you know... Use my time better? Yeah, that's Have it. better exam smarts? In any case, <laughs> uh, so that's kind of our list. And yeah, so I mean, again, a lot of these are just not put on very often, yeah. especially, uh, I mean, we have a pretty decent Shakespeare scene here in Edmonton, um, but, you know, you'll never see a movie version of Two Noble Kinsmen. Like, it's just, it's not in the books. Like, yeah. nobody's ever going to do that. Even even Kenneth Branagh's not going to put forward what does it cost for a cheap, even a cheap indie movie is probably yeah. a couple million at this point. You're not going to put that kind of money forward for, for a two noble kinsman. Um, so, I mean, the question kind of becomes why these plays, like what, what, what is it that these plays have in common or yeah. uh, what is it that perhaps stands out amongst these that uh, might explain why even to, in this day and age, mm-hmm. again, in the 17th century, uh, King Lear would be on this list. Yes. He'd be like, oh, no one does Lear. It's so depressing. So what was it about our age in particular that, that these plays struggle with? And I think part of it is is still to this day, we want to know where our characters sit in the play mm-hmm. or in the story we're watching. So to have a play that doesn't fit a neat category, I think does bother us a little bit. Yeah. Not necessarily on a broad scale, because I think we, we've seen an emergence of... Um, anti-hero type stories come about uh, with the res- with the resurgence of prestige TV, yeah. Mad Men and Breaking Bad, where, yeah. you know, characters who are not... Sopranos even, yeah. Yeah, The yeah. Sopranos, perfect example, right? These are not good guys. Don Draper is not a guy that you hold up as like a paragon of virtue yes. in yes. any way, shape or form. But we root for him anyway. So it's confusing, but we like it. Mm-hmm. And that's something that comes out of a postmodern or post-postmodern television landscape that we're in today. So what I said is not wholly true in the sense that um, characters, I think, individually are allowed to not be strictly categorized yeah as a good guy a bad guy yeah the good girl the bad girl right like it's you're allowed to have that kind of flexibility with characters but i think the stories overall need to have a, a, a not a moral but they need to have like like a solid underpinning yeah Right. So Troilus and Cressida is a perfect example, as we talked about last week or last episode, that you have characters who are both good and bad. They do good things. They do bad things. They fit on both sides or or a multitude of sides. But the story itself is hard to categorize. Is it a war story? Is it a love story? Is it a philosophy, uh, you know, yeah. exposition? Yeah. Like, how how does this work? How do you bring all of these various storylines together into one? Um, well, and the answer is Shakespeare doesn't really. He well, kind yeah, of, he exactly. He leaves them dangling, dangling in, in the in the in the wind, really. Yeah. So um, that is that that's definitely a very good uh, point for why that one in particular doesn't doesn't really connect to as same. you like it is another example i think mm-hmm. it has, well we talked about that a lot yeah in like where it's it's kind of fractured in a way that doesn't resonate as well with audiences um 
the version that we saw uh, last year before COVID kind of shut everything down had the it, it needed to have a through line and so that through line was provided through the pop music of yes. the Beatles. Yeah. So it was it was done in that sort of way that allowed the story. The story made sense in a '60s hippie kind of context. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's how we enter into the play, and it was it was a pretty successful way of mm. bringing that play in. But doing it straight. Um, yeah, when we watched the BBC production, yeah. it, it, it struggled a bit because it is just... There's this, this court drama and there's yeah. like brothers who are feuding and it feels like this is a the beginning of a, a dark Lear type tragedy, but then you have this frolic in the forest yeah. bit and there's and a there's boxing Jake match yeah, exactly. and there's depression yeah. Yeah. and <laughs> it's very different. Like it just feels like an experiment and... And that's not necessarily something that um, is easy for an audience no. to, to jump into. Yeah, no. Yeah. Um, and I think when you talk about the history plays, I think the history plays are just dry anyway. They really can be. I think. Well, I mean, we've talked about this, especially with Henry the Sixth, and to an extent, King John as well. Mm-hmm. Um, is that often there's no main character like Richard III is one of yeah. the most famous Shakespeare plays because Richard III is, is the, main the main character, character. Henry VI is a completely wasteful uh, excuse for a human being in most of his plays yeah. uh, and King John sidelined. yeah in King John it's not about King John at all either no um, so uh, Richard II is maybe somewhere in between those right, right? yeah uh, so like the, the history is really struggle in terms of like giving you a, a main character to latch onto mm-hmm. and and providing that um that sense of like almost hubris like i'm going back to aristotle again and like he he had all these the great he invented all the great terms for for this mm-hmm. stuff like uh catharsis right finally hits me uh so when like you you need a, a character to root for to kind of feel what they're feeling so that then when you reach the end yes. you can have this catharsis King John doesn't have anything no. like that. You know, Henry VI completely lacks it in the first place. Especially. Well, he's not even a character, really. Yeah, I mean, he, really. Well, he's a baby the, in the first place. <laughs> yes, <laughs> in a sense. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and then and and the characters that you do think think you should root for, like Talbot, die. Yeah. And like, like it doesn't... Well, and you meet him in the third act. Like, it's, yeah. it's just like, it's, it's completely it's, crazy. It's, but that's also, I think... Um, uh, a consequence of being written earlier in Shakespeare's career. Well, well, and he might not have written much of that play. There's sure. also that idea, right? Exactly. So, yeah. so, so it's less successful for a number of reasons, but I think um, that's certainly a, a big part of it. And 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 then just also like the stories aren't famous either. Henry the Fifth is yeah. a famous story because Henry the Fifth is a legendary figure. Yeah. Richard the Third. There's legendary status heaped upon Richard III because of the boys in the tower and, yeah, and yeah. stuff like that. So then the question becomes, why is Henry VIII not yes, exactly. a famous play? Yeah. Um, so because Henry VIII, of all the English kings... Might be the most famous. And yet his play... Yeah. I couldn't tell you anything that happens in that play. There's a fight between Elizabeth and Mary... I think. Oh, okay. And I only know that because it was referenced in Upstart Crow. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. I good. think that's it. And I, like, I've never read it. I'm, no. I'm very curious about what's in it. But see, this is the problem with, yeah. <laughs> with approaching this. Uh, it's just that it doesn't. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be honest. Like, I, I'm. I'm. I'm very curious about. We're gonna have to revisit this whole list maybe after we've read Henry VIII because it doesn't. It seems 
completely strange to me that that play does not fit in with the other famous history well, plays. Well, here's the thing. Again, is is Henry VIII? Does he is he the main character? Like, is yeah. is is there a, is there a narrative thrust there that that makes sense and can and that the audience can tie on to? Um, some of the other ones, like, well, yeah, as you like it is is very much like that. All's well as well as kind of kind of ambiguous in terms of its structure um king john has the bastard who who kind of jumps in late then there's like something like the winter's tale where Mm -hmm. uh it's this two halves of the initial kind of setting the stage and and the the duke or king or whoever who's a jerk and kills his wife uh and then there's like a a time jump forward in like a a very prestige kind tv kind of way and then you have this whole other setting and these whole other characters to to deal with um and they they eventually tie back to that first story but it's not a clear-cut act one act two act three there's a big shift and then act four and five and denouement it's it's this and it ends on complete ambiguity about what happened with the the queen who was killed at at the very start Mm -hmm. um so like yeah a play like that also just doesn't have that traditional expectations those unities Mm -hmm. of you know uh Maybe maybe unity isn't the right word for Shakespeare's time, but yeah. during Shakespeare's time, there were expectations yes. of uh, what was going to uh, happen in a tragedy. When and you have, what would how that would lead to the next thing that would happen? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, and it's odd though because again, <laughs> Merchant of Venice is a very similar one, but it's also one of Shakespeare's most famous plays. But it yeah. has those great characters moments. It has Shylock's yeah. speech. It has um, Antonio's, uh, you know devotion to Bassanio. Yeah. Who it is? I can't remember all the Italian names at that point. Um, and Portia being like with the great dramatic tension of her yeah. walking in as a judge and or saving the, the day lawyer. and yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah. So like there's, there's, there's a, a more traditional structure, even though uh, it doesn't fit into yeah. the comedy or uh, tragedy kind of mm-hmm. setting. Another one I think is worth mentioning is just uh, the historical uh, inertia yeah. of which plays have been put on in the past influences yeah. who which ones are going to be done in the future yeah. um, so I mean Trillis and Cresta again nobody liked it mm-hmm. uh, if, it, if it was true that what we said last episode where it was put on for a bunch of lawyers and yeah. then never performed again yeah. that's not a great uh, impetus to keep it going yeah. and, and say oh yeah I saw Trillis and Cresta it was yeah. great word of mouth gets around yeah, like, yeah. No, it if didn't happen 50 people saw yeah. it yeah. whereas yeah. Romeo and Juliet <laughs> to yeah. this day, it's it's still the by byword for uh, star-crossed lovers. So then, when you when you look at a play like Merry Wives, where mm-hmm. Falstaff is, this play was literally written because Falstaff was such a popular character, yeah. um, and yet it's still not completely accepted as as a great play. And it's not a great play. It feels very out of out of character for Shakespeare, as we mentioned in our episode on that. Mm-hmm. Um, so what? How do you explain? A play is that that's specifically written to capitalize on the popularity of, of a character. Because it doesn't. And that that's okay. one of the interesting things is when we when we talked about this play too, it was it was like for a play about Falstaff, um, he is obviously a central figure, but he's yeah. not even the funniest character on stage in yeah. a lot of cases. It's either the wives or the wife's husband, the mm-hmm. guy who played was played by Ben Kingsley in the yeah. in the BBC production. 
these are the characters who really take the focus right. of the thing. So it's it's kind of funny that, uh, yeah, a vehicle written for this one character doesn't really focus on this one character mm-hmm. except as the butt of the jokes yeah. um, as opposed to the source of the jokes. Right. Um, and so it's just a, a case of the spinoff not really... Not, 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 it's not... This is not Cheers and Frasier we're yes, talking about exactly. Here, this right? is... Uh, All in the family and Archie's place. Thank you. There you go. That's great. I was although Archie's place was was still a good show and it was still okay. I mean, well, maybe that's a bad that's example. A bad example. Um, you've you've got in your notes here that that Mary Wives is also very of the moment, and I think I just because it was bothering me that I didn't know what Henry VIII was about. It focuses very much on the events leading up to the birth of Queen Elizabeth. Ah. So it's literally, I think, written in order to capitalize on you know glorification of gloriana yeah um which could be a reason why it's and also it seems like there's a lot of you know uh political intrigue let's talk about thomas cranmer let's talk about anne boleyn let's let's talk about poor catherine of aragon and and stuff that would have been within living memory of the people who were watching the play maybe so does that does that resonate with people no. No, because the <laughs> stories we remember about Henry VIII are of the seven wives or six wives and yeah. and the the terrible treatment of, of them and um, splitting with the church and, and all of that stuff. Yeah. Not necessarily, you know, yeah, the just infighting. the birth yes. of, of Elizabeth I. Exactly. So that, I mean, I think, I think the plays that tend to be... Mary Wives is another example where it, it's set in... Inexplicably, Falstaff is is a late sixteenth century, yes, suddenly, yes. you know, courtier going up to Windsor, yeah. um, to spend the weekend with his buddies, and so that feels very uh, specific, yes, in a way that Henry V doesn't. Yes, you can't take the Merry Wives of Windsor and update it. Well, you maybe you could, well, I, I think but you I think could, it, but... It, it feels like it has to be. Well, it's in the title, The Merry Wives of Windsor, unless you're going to set it in Windsor, Ontario, wow. in which case that's going to be a very different kind of play. Very depressing. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to everybody from yeah, Windsor. Yeah, for our three listeners in Windsor. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, but like Henry VIII, any of the history plays, yeah, they except don't... for Richard III, which can be very easily transported to Well, fascist, and Henry V, too, Nazi again, and... has as well. Um yeah, it's it's true. There's there's a limited when the focus is so much on historical events or specific yeah, events or, or just specific places. knowledge of the audience. Like the, a lot of the jokes in Merry Wives yeah. were were written a, for the yeah written for the audience of of London, England mm-hmm. of that era. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of those jokes went right over our heads when we were watching it too. I'm mm-hmm. sure. Um, so you you lose a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it it's kind of the same. Uh, with King John a little bit too, it seems like that was more of a comment on uh, kingship and stuff uh, related to the succession like, question. Yeah, and kind stuff. of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Whereas you know, again, I think the ba- the easiest way to do it is to draw or to to explore these points is to draw a contrast. Like Macbeth is about ambition. Yes. And it could be set anywhere. It could mm-hmm. be any king in any place time, you know. Uh, it doesn't even need to be a king. It could just be the leader of a yeah. business or, well, or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If you wanted yeah. to do it that way. Well, Kurosawa did yeah. that in all yeah. of his movies, right? Exactly. So it's, you know, you can literally transplant that 
story and and because it's not about Macbeth. Yes, it's about a broader theme. Yes, and when you don't or a have, general type of character yes. like Macbeth. Yes, yes. Yeah. So when you have a play like King John, or Troilus and Cressida, or um, Merry Wives, where it's less, they're not stock characters. They're not stock plots. They're not easily identifiable distilled down to a central yeah. point like ambition yeah. or guilt. Yes. Or love. Or love. Or whatever the case yeah. may be. Uh, um, yeah. But then I guess the the other thing, come, when you come back to, I, I always think of Winter's Tale, which really is, but it's not. It is, but it isn't. <laughs> it is, but it isn't it's, what, Lindsay? I think it, it deals a lot in... Um, in guilt and uh, regret, I think King Leontes in in Winter's Tale in the Winter's Tale is um, is very much like Othello, um, overcome by by um, jealousy, and then gets to do what Othello doesn't, which is um, make amends for it. Mm-hmm. That, to me, seems like a much more interesting story than it's given credit for. And that's why I do like that Winter's Tale is starting to get a little bit more popular. And you start, mm-hmm. you're start, you starting... I, wasn't there a film? Oh, the Winter's Tale was, was filmed a few years ago, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think okay. so. I'm not 100% sure about that. But it's contrasted. I always like Winter's Tale and Cymbeline. I put them together because I read them around the same time. And so Cymbeline is like that, that very Celtic Britain... Um, legend which again it's not like a famous legend it's not um you know familiar legend to anybody who is not well versed in in the ancient kings of of Brittany or, or Brit Britain the British Isles mm-hmm. you're not going to understand that story the same way that you would if you were you know living in England and, and maybe you know this is part of your history but it still has similar themes there, right? Where somebody yeah. does something bad to somebody else and then gets to see that wrong righted. Lear doesn't get, kind of gets to see that, but it still yeah. ends poorly. Othello doesn't get to see that. It seems like those are stories that that have a more modern day happy ending. Yeah. So they should be more popular today? <laughs> Am I making sense? Uh, a little bit. <laughs> I think, I think, like they still deal with these big ideas of jealousy and guilt and justice and love and like that kind of devotion, that kind of thing. But it's more complicated. It's more complicated, and that's and that's the thing. I think, I think maybe what our modern expectations of Shakespeare are is that it Shakespeare is that Shakespeare what Shakespeare uh, is that it's not complicated. It is the straightforward Hamlet. It's, yeah. I, I don't know whether I'm going to kill my uncle. Let's spend four hours talking about it. <laughs> it's, uh, oh, let's have a, a, a fun romp through uh, whatever in uh, with four four twins in uh, yeah. Comedy of Errors. It's it's those kind of simple, straightforward uh, expectations of, of that. I think when Shakespeare wanders away from that, it can, it's... It's maybe more of a challenge than I think Shakespeare audience goers are perhaps ready for. But a modern audience understands that Don Draper can be both the hero and the bad guy. So why can't we understand how Laontes can be both 
the a good guy who's trying to do right and also a bad I, guy. I think it is that historical inertia. Yeah. It's it's no Shakespeare's for Shakespeare's for Macbeth and Othello mm-hmm. and Hamlet and Lear. It's not for uh, Charles and Cresta and a comment on consumerism. What could Shakespeare possibly know about that that we don't know about in the 21st century? Okay, all right. I, I, that's just. I my mean, it's kind unfortunate of... if that's the case because it doesn't seem like it's. Um, there, there are things you're going to miss if you start to just say, "Well, this is the way we do it because this is the way we've always well, done it." Well, absolutely, and we talked about that with yeah. with Charles and Cresta, especially last episode. It was like, "Is this play ready for its resurgence?" And mm-hmm. we both kind of wound up agreeing that it, it possibly could be. It's it's a unique look yeah. at some of the themes that that are still important to this day, mm-hmm. and yeah, why why aren't audiences more interested in it? Um, I think that I think that historical part plays a pretty big role, actually. Why, some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrown upon them. There's also the idea that Shakespeare may have not written these yeah. plays. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're a, um, a hardcore Stratfordian, uh, it's probably, you know, if you want to read a Shakespearean play, you're going to go to the ones that are for sure 100% written by Shakespeare. You're not probably not going to dive into one of the plays he co-authored or if you're aware enough about um, the the authorship question or um, interested in, in what Aidan has called the studio system of Elizabethan England, um, the ones that he uh, contributed to, contributed to yeah. but probably didn't write most of it. Um, they seem like it's it's more of an intellectual exercise for people who are interested in um, talking about playwriting in yeah. Elizabethan times. That yeah. you can look at the different hands and you can analyze the writing and you can say, well, this is 60% uh, Ben Johnson and yeah. 20% Marlowe or whatever the hell, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but it's more of an intellectual exercise as opposed to a fun... Yeah, because you, you the don't watch the, are, Yeah, you don't watch the plays for... The enjoyment, no. the way you can. No, you watch it for. Oh, this is this is this scene by this author, and yeah. oh, this is Shakespeare's scene. You yeah. know, and then you see how they mesh together or something like that. Um, but but do you think that these are weaker plays because they have multiple authors potentially, or do you think that that doesn't? Because in a Hollywood studio system, you know, most stories are written by many people. Yeah, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they're bad stories. We just finished watching WandaVision, and the the credit sequence on those are, are like 50 minutes long. Yes, most of that's the visual effects. People sure, like, I yes. get it. But there's a lot of writers, <laughs> yeah. and it was brilliant, right? Yeah. Lots of well-written scenes, and it's very well done. So having many authors doesn't mean it's a bad play, but do you think that having a lack of focus, when you have many people writing, I, I mean, this is why you and I don't write together, because we don't yeah, mesh well, we don't do well writing right. well together. Is that why Two Noble Kinsmen? Because it's been it's well, possibly written by m- more than one author. Possibly, I mean, again, we haven't read most of the ones that that fall into that yeah. category, except for you know Henry the Sixth Part Part One. Um, yeah. they think it might be as little as twenty percent of Shakespeare's. Yeah, uh, which we commented on in that episode. In that, uh, yeah, even way back then. But it was it was uh, it's interesting to think about that and think well. The few scenes that I liked were those the ones that Shakespeare yeah. wrote. You know, you kind of find yourself wondering that because Shakespeare does have a pretty distinct style. Yeah. And so when you're reading a play that that kind of Deviates lacks, yeah, it lacks certain elements that you you kind of expect from Shakespeare. Like, 
something as simple as like how his lower class characters talk or or, right. um, or the types of jokes that they tell yeah and stuff like or, that like yeah. there there might be some some cognitive dissonance that kind of stays in your head as you're watching yeah. those kind of plays so that might that might definitely impact it i think mm-hmm. um it's not a studio system where like today you'd have a director of a film who's sure. going to be the final decision. And so they might make some small tweaks to the script to make it more consistent. I guess and that's true. they're going to have, you know, multiple producers doing the same thing. Like there, there's a lot more unifying work that goes on today. Yeah. Whereas opposed to be like, okay, Shakespeare, we need you to write act three scenes, four to seven. This like, needs to happen. And this we needs need to, to happen. Have, this guy is contractually obligated <laughs> to have a speaking part. Yes. Yeah. He just you gets know, those things. There needs then, to be a joke about dicks. Yes. Yes. Whips right? it together. And that's yeah. what two noble kinsmen is or whatever. Right. Yeah. Uh, so when you face that, kind of system uh back in the day it might not translate very well Um, i guess that's true i think that's that's just something that that probably does impact uh some of these plays again i think we'll comment on it when Mm -hmm. we get to the plays that are uh pretty well considered not written exclusively by shakespeare yeah we're we're tackling them more towards the end but i don't know if they were written towards the end most of them were like i mean were they some of them were written when he was retiring yeah. Like Two Noble Kinsmen and Henry VIII, I think, are both. But like, then you have Henry, Henry VI, part one, when he was just starting out. Or, yeah. um, you know, Taming of the Shrew that might have yeah. had some collaboration there as yeah. well, which yeah. were like the second and third plays that we talked about on this podcast. So yeah. When um, he was starting and when he's yeah. on his way out, he's he's I guess. forced into collaboration. Cause I do wonder if there's collaboration in the middle that we don't know about, too. Like, it, it, what, what would have stopped that from happening well if he was an established playwright and he's pumping out the hits don't mess with him i guess you don't need you don't need marlo coming in or or uh johnson or someone to to fix his plays because he's doing fine on his own and then at the end you don't need them to script doctor it yeah exactly yeah you don't need a a (laughs) carrie fisher Fisher yeah exactly (laughs) okay i get it yeah that makes sense but it it does um this conversation is kind of bumming me out because it's like (laughs) you know the things that we're that we're saying are required for a play to be good we can't first of all we can't even nail it down i think that's part of the problem with with these plays why there's such a problem um because you really can't figure out why and you can't it would be impossible to i think come up with a solid answer for it yeah but but even still the things that we're coming up with are kind of depressing right that you know there's there are certain things that these stories need that they don't have or well yeah i mean for them to be successful i think they can like like we've been saying throughout, yeah. like they might be really interesting plays, and I, I really enjoyed The Winter Tale when we saw it. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoyed reading Trolls and Crest, Obviously, I wrote a screenplay based yeah. on it. Yeah, I, like I, has always been one of my favorite. Yeah, plays. you've always yeah. loved it. Yeah, I mean, there's there might be something to engage with the play intellectually, mm-hmm. or even enjoy seeing it. Like uh, as you like it, we really enjoyed that production because it made it fun and it yeah. turned it into something that uh, was easy to deal with. Are they ever going to be Marvel Cinematic Universe popular tentpole productions? They're not going to be Hamlet's and Macbeth's. Like, that's probably not just because, again, all those those factors that we've talked about. They're not, uh, well, they're not produced very often. Uh, They don't fit our expectations. They don't have simple, Mm. straightforward plot lines and characters and stuff. 
there's just all these factors going against them in terms of accessibility maybe yeah. might be the, the okay. best way of putting it so do you see a point in time like i said in my intro essay two three four hundred years from now where these plays like what would be the 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 necessary foundations for theater going forward that would allow these plays to be maybe become more popular like what would you need to have in order for them to be a shift in a shift in uh taste i mean it'd be like yeah like if all of a sudden the only thing that was being produced there were no more marvel movies we're back to the 70s everything's taxi and all these like dark uh you know ambivalent yeah 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 not taxi not taxi the tv show not not quite so dark um yeah it's it's all these these uh ambivalent uncertain things and that's really popular again right i mean that those are all still kind of popular in the art house you know like you you have i think that's still for our in our uh period of time that we're in right now there, there's popular mm-hmm. Marvel movies and there's Art House. And the two cross over occasionally and mm-hmm. you get Taika Waititi doing uh, yeah. you know, Marvel movies and they're great. And then you might have or a famous a director. Or a WandaVision type thing yeah, yeah, where it's very yeah. kind of niche. And yeah, well, it's not it's niche. Very it's very popular. But it's, yeah, it's artistic. It has it yeah, takes a different yeah, approach yeah, and yeah. It, it, answer, it asks different questions. Um, yeah, so you have those back and forth. Right. But generally there's that. Um if they ever move, if ever the popular completely switches over to the David Lynch uh, approach, uh, then I think Atreus and Cresta is going to do flipping amazing because you right. can cast the two sexiest starlets of the all time. They bang once. He makes fun of her uh, in a very sexist way the morning after, and then she cheats on him. Like, I don't know. Maybe that'll be the taste in 100 years. I really don't know. Yeah. Um, but it, the possibility is there. Well, I think the, the yeah, and, and that's that's what I was going to say, too, that the possibility is there, that we're, we're seeing, as we talked about with Troilus and Cresta, like a fracturing of um, perspective and, um, and characterization that uh, leads to the possibility that a story that is more complex or that isn't um, hemmed in by very strict adherence to character tropes and mm. story tropes and plot whole plot tropes that that would allow a, a, a more fractured type of story to come forward yep. right yep. I don't think that Henry the sixth is ever going to be a popular play though no I don't think King John is ever going to be a popular play but I no. do think of the plays that we were talking about there are some that yeah. have great potential to become great plays. Yeah, well, what popular plays? Popular plays. Well performed. Yeah. Better performed. More, more often popular. Perform- more more popular. popular. Let's just go with popular. That's easy. If I longer stay, we shall begin our ancient bickerings. So this episode's ancient bickerings. Great segue, by the way. What? What we just talked about, because this is going to be our yeah, ancient bickerings. Yeah, yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. It's like we planned this. <laughs> We didn't. didn't. Uh, It is, which of these plays do you think has the best opportunity of becoming uh, uh, a better well-known play? Lindsay, I'll let you go first because I think you have one in mind. I do. Well, I had one walking into this episode. And then as we were talking about it, the more I thought about it, the more I was like, this would would work well. Um, I think The Merry Wives of Windsor is the one that I would choose that has the the most potential. just because I think for a, for a modern audience today, you 
could play down some of the more regional colloquialisms and the things that really would only make sense to a a London audience in the Mm -hmm. 1590s and play up a lot of the really ridiculous humor. And this could be a frat comedy or something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, I could see that happening. I think it has a lot of the broad humor that, that... was very popular in the early 2000s and that I'm seeing starting to come back yeah. a little bit with... Um, yeah, Will Ferrell is... <laughs> a yeah, bit. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, that. Will Ferrell could be in the movie. Yeah. He yeah. could play Falstaff, yeah. right? Um, and John C. Riley would be right there beside him. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Well, maybe not. Maybe, I don't yeah. know. Uh, I think that um, has the most potential for broad appeal today. Yeah. Without doing a whole bunch of additional you know i i was going to say troilus and cressida yeah because of what i said in the last episode but without doing too much script doctoring mm-hmm. to the story i think mary wives would be the best option for for today's audience what do you think uh i was actually going to go with troilus and cressida okay. too but i think i'd actually go for the winter's tale um with hearing you talk about it a little bit more and and remembering how the gr- the great ambiguity yeah. on which that play ends is uh very modern um and it feels feels very earned that's a it's a really strong play in the sense of setting yeah. you up for one thing changing the tone drastically <laughs> but then sucking you into that tone as well yeah. and then combining the two at the end into this dramatic supernatural thing. maybe yeah, yeah 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 something that's gone on and it's it's um it feels like it feels I was, this is a terrible analogy but it feels a little bit like parasite because parasite was a comedy okay. in the first half and then it's a thriller in the second half and uh winter's tale is the opposite it's it's a dark drama yeah. uh family uh infidelity concern and then it's a, a joyous comedy. yeah pastoral comedy in the second half With and magic. then they, and they come together into a happy ending yeah. so again kind of the opposite of parasite but <laughs> it's 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 that kind of tonal yeah. shift and and it it works quite well uh in a lot of movies these days um i think you could easily get audiences on board with it uh in the right hands and the production we saw i thought did a very good job of that so yeah um that's probably one of my favorite plays that, yeah, that we've um, seen that we've seen yeah. that they've done yep at the the Shakespeare Festival here in Edmonton, yeah. That yeah. was called the River City Shakespeare Festival. Yes, we found an old... We found an old yeah. program from 2004. Our first time. Our first time going, and yeah. it was called the River City Shakespeare Festival. So at all those times on the past in, the, in this podcast that we've called it the River City Shakespeare Festival, we weren't wrong, we're just old. Yeah. We just remember things differently. <laughs> That's a very Lynchian way to end it. <laughs> such sweet sorrow that I shall say good night till it be morrow. Lindsay, where are we going next? Uh, well, nowhere because COVID has kept us at home for That's a, a very, very long time. Very, very oh, but the point. play we're doing next, yes. obviously. Sure. Measure for measure. Okay. Measure for measure is our next episode. Um, as we've mentioned before, exciting kind of because uh, it's. Um, one that we haven't read. So yeah, I think that'll yeah. be a good yeah. kind of a And good it's another one that's not produced very often, actually. Mm-hmm. It could have been on this list as well. Have, um, yeah. But yeah, we'll, we'll see where it goes. Uh, following that, I think we're talking about Shakespeare's comedies. Yes. I think Comically Shakespeare is the <laughs> title that we're going with. Um, so I, not necessarily just in terms of 
which plays end with the best marriages, but but which ones have the best humor in them yeah. as well? Yeah. Because Shakespeare's humor is something that a lot of people use to to pull you into the play, especially when you're teaching it at a high school yeah. level. You use the humor and the language to and the puns and everything to get kids interested in in the the stories. Yeah. So that I think is underrated in a sense because unless you're talking about this in a high school class you're probably going to gloss over a lot of the more interesting humor humorous aspects of the play yeah unless it's the broad physical comedy or or the the obvious puns and stuff like there yeah yeah there's a lot to talk about with Shakespeare and it's and it's interesting because you have to talk about the language again too because the language has changed and a lot of the puns have changed and our pronunciations have changed so you miss a lot of that stuff so it'll be fun to kind of dive into the the funniest moments I think um within the plays not just with the comedies there are some brilliantly funny moments in in the tragedies and the histories as well that we'll talk about there too yeah so that's uh coming up over the next month or so yeah uh we hope you'll stay with us for those episodes uh we're looking forward to talking about them and uh thank you for coming here today you'll notice that i'm not saying anything because the last episode i rambled on for way too long and you're doing it again doing it again i can't help it there's just silence i have to fill it it's just how i it's how i roll baby You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast fix. If you want to tell us what you think of Shakespeare, his plays, poems, or any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us on Twitter, that's at TheBixPod, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TheBixPod, or by email at TheBixPod at gmail.com. That's our cue to exit.